Welcome to the Judgment Enforcement Hour with Joe Dickerson. In our program, we reveal the unrealistic expectations of many creditors and the schemes of debtors and fraudsters that are nearly as old as man's time on earth. Now, here is your host, Joe Dickerson, with the new processes to outsmart the bad guys. Good evening, Mr. and Ms. America. This is Joe Dickerson, your host for the Judgment Enforcement Hour. As we've discussed before, 80% of the civil judgments in the United States are never collected, and we just believe that's not right. So the purpose of this program is to keep our listeners and our clients out of that 80% of creditors that never get their money and put them back into the 20% that actually do get their money back. This is not brain surgery, but it does require that the judgment creditor be proactive and get involved in the process. They must put together a financial forensic research team with relative experience and that are serious about getting their clients' money back. You've got to have the right forensic folks. You've got to have a bulldog attorney. And above all, you have to have the burning desire to make the bad guys want to pay the money back. We just never accept no here at our firm. We don't understand what that means. I kind of think sometimes it probably means either I'm not convinced that I should really pay it back, or maybe you're not serious, are you? Or maybe it is that you just haven't reached the right pain threshold to require me to do what I'm probably going to have to do at some point anyhow. So with that said, before we get into the actual program this evening, I must tell you that this information is not intended to be legal advice and may not be used as legal advice. Legal advice must be tailored to the specific circumstances of each case. Every effort has been made to assure you that the information here is up to date and it is not intended to be a full and exhaustive explanation of the law in any area, nor should it replace the advice of your own legal counsel. Any opinions expressed here are strictly the opinions of the speakers. Last week, we discussed the basic and beyond the basic effective judgment enforcement. This week, we're going to get into the beyond part of that. We'll be covering uh, the use of the debtor's mortgage to find valuable property. We'll be talking about creditors' rights, creditors' bills, UCC filings, and how that can lead you to the collateral that you need to recover. We'll talk about fraudulent conveyances, real estate foreclosures, which are really where big money is. And we'll talk about uh, the trust, the various kinds, and how we get around them. Our guest for this week is going to be Al Hawkeiser, who was with us last week for the first part of this program. Uh, we'll be going into the more advanced phases, as we just talked about. Al, for those of our guests that weren't with us last week, please give them a quick overview of your background and your firm and how you folks work judgment enforcements in general. Then we'll get down to the meat. Okay. Thank you, Joe, and thank you for allowing me to be your guest once again. And I'm Al Hockheiser. I have 30-plus years uh, in the business of collections, commercial and consumer collections, bankruptcy. I'm with the firm of Maurice Witcher. 
which is a national firm. We have offices located all throughout the country, and we represent creditors, helping them recover monies owed to them, their judgments, and also we handle any defense actions that may be filed against creditors, such as FDCPA, TCPA, and FCRA. Very good. Well, you and I had discussed that we would probably start off this evening uh, talking about uh, creditors' bills, the big hammer in asset recovery. So I'll let you lead off with that if you would. Great. So, you know, creditors' bills is a term that a lot of people aren't very familiar with. And I want to take a couple of quick minutes to describe the creditors' bill process and how it could be a very, very effective tool to allow creditors to collect on their judgments um, when the individual or the company is owed money by a third party. And last week we talked about wage garnishments, and that's one of the ways to get money, sometimes successful, not for big judgments, against individuals. But what happens if, number one, the individual you might be collecting against is an independent contractor or a realtor or somebody who works on commissions and has money coming in at a certain point in time, but not on a regular basis. A creditor's bill could be one of those tools. The other time that we look at using creditor's bills is when a company is owed money by other companies or even individuals. How do you get at that money? It's not in their bank account, and we know that once money goes in the bank account, if you're not quick to have a bank attachment file, that money's going to be used by your judgment debtor for whatever things. So a creditor's bill is a legal action that gets filed in the court, and what that creditor's bill says is, I am the judgment creditor of this company, this company owes me $250,000. But we know through our investigations, and this is why, as Joe always mentions, a big piece is doing the forensic investigation up front and having information. We know that there are receivables owed to this company by these 35 different businesses. And we know that they are going to pay over that money but that money shouldn't go to the judgment debtor. It should come to us because of our judgment that's out there. So in this lawsuit, not only are you naming the debtor or the debtor company, but you're going to name all of the other companies that owe that company money. So you are listing in that case... Uh, 35 different uh, creditors. And at that point in time, each of those creditors will get served with a lawsuit. Well, what does that do? Well, when that lawsuit is served, it serves as a lien automatically on the money that's to be paid over. And at that point in time, if those creditors they're the creditors of your judgment debtor, okay, pay over the money, they will be in violation of that creditor's bill. The other thing that it does is 
it creates a situation to put pressure on the debtor. And the creditors who are doing business with the debtor and owe them money might say, look, we're not going to do business with you. We got named in this lawsuit, so you better take care of that if you still want to provide us with product. So it becomes that pressure tool to put us in a situation where the debtor may now come to the table and set up payment arrangements. Well, we found the creditor's bill to be very successful, and we have found that courts will also deal with the creditor's bills on an emergency basis. So even if you don't have a judgment and you're still in a lawsuit process, some courts will consider a creditor's bill similar to a preliminary injunction to prevent the turnover and the payment of those funds. Okay, Al, let me ask you this. If we've already got our case moving and we find that the debtor has a new deal going out there and that there is somebody else that is going to have to be paying him money uh, before long that we didn't know about when we filed the original case, can we now add this third party in and uh, confiscate that money? So it, it will procedurally wise, yes. How you go about it is the question. Depending where you are in your original creditor's bill, you may just need to file an amended creditor's bill to add the new parties. You may also need to file a second creditor's bill if the injunction piece and it has been uh, already to the stage of almost a final adjudication. But nothing stops you from adding creditors of the debtor or continuing with the process of multiple creditor's bills. So that's why this is so successful, because as you continue your process and as you continue to learn more about your debtor and obtain more information, you can tie up those assets. Okay, good. Well, that's very interesting. And as you say, there are a lot of us that just don't have too much experience with creditors' bills, so it's good to know that that is a big hammer that's available to us. Let's move on now to talk about uh, UCCs or Uniform Commercial Code filings and how the collateral that is in those can be turned to an asset uh, for our clients. So UCC financing statements, and to go back, UCC financing statements are usually obtained at the time that a company, a financial institution is making a loan uh, to the debtor, debtor company. And what the UCC financing statement does it perfects your security interest in non-real or title property. So UCC financing statements cover accounts receivables, intangibles, uh, certificates of deposit, uh, any type of asset. uh, It can include artwork. It can include antiques, anything of that nature. So when the creditor takes a security interest, and files a UCC-1 financing statement, and those must be filed with the Secretary of State of uh, the state where the debtor uh, has the property. And then the other piece of it is sometimes you may also need to file it in a county, uh, but as long as you have it filed in the Secretary of State, you're going to be in pretty good shape. As creditors, we use that information because... At times, it's not your general provisions that we are taking a blanket security interest 
in all your goods. And sometimes they will list specifics. And right away, this gives us the ability, number one, to know certain assets that the debtor has. You know, you typically don't see antiques in a UCC filing statement. But if it's there, now you know the debtor has some antiques. The other good thing about UCC financing statements, and you can go online. Every state has an online uh, system where you can see what prior UCCs are out there, uh, and you can get copies of them. Uh, very, most of them are free. Sometimes they may call, charge you a dollar or two. Very inexpensive. But the other thing you need to be make, make sure of is you may see a debtor out there that has 8 to 10 UCC filings. A lot of the times these, the debts have already been paid off. So one of the things you want to do is go back and check and reach out to who the secured party is listed. And you do that, you contact them. We've had a lot of success. They'll tell us, yep, we still have this, and it is a valid UCC. A lot of the times they'll tell you, guess what? It's been paid off. Well, it should have been released, and now maybe you have another asset that you can go after uh, with the UCCs. And if it hasn't been paid yeah. off, you want to find out from that creditor how much is owed on it because the value of the collateral could be significantly more than the debt that's owed on it. It's going to be time for us to take a break here in about 30 seconds. So when we come back from that, uh, I'd like to give an example or two that we've used on this, Al, and then we'll move right along. So here we go for our first break. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Learn why 80% of civil money judgments are never enforced in the United States. Ensure that you have the best chance to actually recover your judgment and get the money the court awarded to you. Order a copy of Joe Dickerson's new book, Diagnostic and Prescriptive Judgment Enforcement. You can get your copy for just $24.95 with no shipping and handling costs. Call 303-974-5610 or order via email from Joe at FinancialForensicServices.com. That's 303-974-5610 or Joe at FinancialForensicServices.com. Did you know that 80% of civil judgments awarded to creditors are never collected? Be one of the 20% that successfully collects. Joe Dickerson is the nation's leading financial forensic expert. Contact Joe at 303-974-5610 or by email to joe at financialforensicservices.com for a free consultation about your judgment enforcement needs. That's 303-974-5610 or joe at FinancialForensicServices.com for your free judgment enforcement initial consultation with Joe Dickerson. Contact him today. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to the Judgment Enforcement Hour. To reach host Joe Dickerson or his guest this week, call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now, back to the show. 
Okay, we're back from the break now, and we can continue talking about UCC filings and the collateral that is encumbered by those and how we may be able to reach that uh, collateral and take it for our own creditors' benefits. Uh, I have had uh, quite a few occasions where we find out that the amount due on the loan that was secured by the UCC is, say, maybe $20,000. And we've got several hundred thousand dollars worth of equipment that was originally pledged for security on that loan, uh, on that debt. So uh, what we've done is, for instance, uh, oil field equipment. You may have one piece of equipment uh, like a blowout preventer that could be two or three hundred thousand dollars, and if that's paid down to twenty thousand uh, dollars, we'll just go take the equipment from uh, the debtor that has it in their possession, uh, pay off the twenty thousand uh, dollars, clean up the equipment, and there have been many times in the past when the oil market was good that we have found that uh, used equipment would be going for as much as 110 to 120% of book value if you could make immediate delivery on the used equipment. So you can have that equipment sandblasted, uh, repainted, and deliver it in two or three days and pick up dollars $200,000 uh, right off the top. And people overlook that because they think, well, it's secured. We can't take it. Well, as long as the creditor gets their money, you can take it and resell that. So uh, let's always keep that in mind and never overlook those opportunities because, as I said a while ago, no is just not a part of our vocabulary. Uh, Al, you want to expand up? Yes, go. I want to touch on another example where being creative uh, in a similar type situation, I've been involved in cases where the debtor has a substantial amount of receivables, say $500,000. We know that there's owing to the first lien holder with the UCC $50,000. But the debtor is not doing a good job of collecting the receivables. Okay, The first lien holder doesn't really want to collect the receivables, but our client has the ability to either collect the receivables or send it to uh, an agency or a law firm to do that collection activity. So even without, and your example is great because we've seen that with equipment all the time, where you're paying off the first lien holder right away, we have been creative, and so it's not cash out of pocket, and we have said, look, for lien holder number one, we're going to collect the receivables for you, you get the first 50000 less any you know, out-of-pocket expenses, and then we have everything after that. That way, as a creditor, you're not coming out-of-pocket, uh, but you're also controlling and have the ability to get paid. So similar type scenario, uh, but that's also a way to think about it and be creative. Again, I mean, your term, you know, never take no for an answer, also, thinking out outside the box, very crucial to getting your judgments paid. Absolutely. And if you get in a position like that, you may well be able to uh, discount the amount that the creditor actually has to pay to get his uh, debt uh, cleared, and you can move on to the next one, and everybody comes out well. Absolutely. All right. Uh, you have any other examples on UCCs or... Shall the we only move other along thing to that I wanted to mention, 
mention on the UCCs real quickly is UCCs can also be used in different ways. Okay, and one of the uh, situations out there, and we see this a lot when merchant cash advance funders have obtained judgments, is there a process called UCC lien letters. So if you have a UCC and you are secured in, in certain assets, and it's similar to a creditor's bill but without legal action, okay, you can send a letter, provide the documentation of the amounts owed, your security interest, your UCC financing stat, uh, statement, and send it to the creditor of the debtor. And we see this used for uh, people who sell things through Amazon and things of that nature, companies that do that, and where they're getting money to be paid, and Amazon and the other companies out there will be required to freeze those funds, and then you could proceed to go take the next step going through court to get that money. But that money will not be going to the debtor right away. So that's another use of the UCCs besides finding assets and being able to collect on them is using the UCC in an affirmative way when you have filed a UCC if you have taken one on the front end. Very good. Well, that's a concept that a lot of folks have probably never thought about, and it's good to know there's another tool in the toolbox out there. All right, let's talk about fraudulent conveyances and fraudulent transfers. Uh, I wrote a white paper here a while back called The Good News About Fraudulent Conveyances, and people say, well, what in the devil could be good news about a fraudulent conveyance? Well, my position on that is anytime a fraudulent conveyance has occurred, there is paperwork to go with it to show that those assets have been moved from one owner to another, usually from your debtor to a third party or to a straw entity that they've set up. And when those are moved, they are leaving us fresh evidence of the conveyance that is irrefutable. And oftentimes, not only did they convey it, but you have to look at the seven or eight badges of fraud, uh, badges meaning indicators of fraud. And the, one of the questions is, was it conveyed for reasonable consideration? Well, a lot of times there was no consideration. And that, of course, is a violation uh, in itself. If there wasn't uh, reasonable consideration and no consideration is certainly not reasonable. Uh, was it done at a time that the debtor knew or should have known uh, that they were going to be sued. Well, if they've already been sued, they darn sure know about it. Uh, if they have borrowed money and the creditor is a financial institution, I would submit to you that when you borrowed the money, if you read the fine print, it said in there, and if you don't pay us, we will sue you. So when you defaulted on your first payment that wasn't made, you're on notice at that point that you're going to be sued. So there's no way of saying that I wasn't on notice that if I didn't pay, I wouldn't be sued. So there's another badge of fraud that's met. Uh, was it done at a time that you were otherwise insolvent and couldn't meet your obligations? Another badge of fraud. Well, if you're not paying your creditors and you say you're insolvent, I know you wouldn't lie to me, so I'll take your word for it. You're insolvent. So if you did a fraudulent conveyance when you were insolvent or if it made you insolvent, there's another badge of fraud. So 
the good news is every time you do one of those things, you leave a record that is admissible in court that your conveyance was fraudulent. And when it's fraudulent, basically, as I understand it, now you can give a more in-depth legal explanation, but the end result of that is the courts will rule in effect that the conveyance just didn't happen, so it is unwound, then the debtor that originally owned the assets before they conveyed them still owns them, so we can go take them. Al, expand on that for us. So, you mentioned so many good points, and, and, you know, as your white paper states, I mean, we could talk on fraudulent conveyances for, you know, two or three shows themselves. Um, The main thing that you want to know about fraudulent conveyances, and Joe, you did an excellent job of explaining them, is the badges of fraud. We're not talking fraud like embezzlement and and the Ponzi schemes. Yeah, those are fraud, and, and if you're involved in those, yeah, you can look at all your fraudulent conveyances. But when you're looking at what did you do to hinder or delay your creditor from being able to collect on amounts that are owed or amounts on your judgment. And once you determine that there is a potential fraudulent conveyance, you then have to take legal action. And you would file a complaint in court saying that your debtor transferred funds, transferred assets, whether it's property, it could be real or it could be personal property. It could be funds in a bank account. It could be interest in a trust. Anything that you, as a judgment creditor, could have gotten their hands on, your hands on, to be able to collect, if that was moved to a third party or another entity, then you have the ability to bring it back. And Joe specifically laid out that the courts find that those transfers are null and void. And let's just use for an example that there was $100,000 that was transferred when the debtor was insolvent and they knew you had your judgment and they transferred the money to the wife. And guess what? This wasn't an estate planning tool. This was so that $100,000 could stay in the family. The debtor still could have the ability to use that money, but instead of in his bank account, it was in, it's now in the wife's bank account who you don't have a judgment against. Now, when you file a fraudulent conveyance action, the debtor is going to try to raise a lot of defenses to try to knock down, knock out what we believe are the badges of fraud. So one of the first things Joe talked about was consideration. Okay? Was there valuable consideration for the transfer? So if it was a transfer of real property, you know, did you pay more than $10, which is a the number they put on in deeds when you transfer property. You know, where's the paperwork to back that up? Were you paid a reasonable equivalent value for the fair market value that was out there? So consideration always becomes a defense that's raised by the debtor, but also it's something, an area that may end up being litigated when you proceed with a fraudulent conveyance action. The other thing is insolvency. That is Al, Al, before you move to insolvency, let me give our listeners a a little clue on how they can find uh, the consideration on real estate when the deed says 
$10 and other good and valuable consideration. That uh, that means basically to you and I, it's none of your business how much I, uh, this conveyance was for. But if you look in the corner of the deed that was recorded, uh, there's usually some handwritten numbers. And those numbers represent uh, what's called a dock fee. And sometimes they'll say DOC and three or four numbers across there. The dock fee is the recording documentary fee that you have to pay the county to record that instrument. And the dock fee in most or many counties around the United States is one-tenth of 1% of the value of the consideration. So if you just move your decimal mark over, you can look at the dock fee until down to the penny how much was paid for that property when it says $10 and other good and valuable consideration. They're not quite as smart as they think they are sometimes. No, and that is why you need to hire professionals because professionals know the tricks of the trade and we're sharing them. And that's a, a big part of... The judgment enforcement hour is to help everybody be in a position to be able to collect on their judgments, go to the right people, or go to the right places. So, yeah, consideration, they don't think we know about it, but we do. And we can find (laughs) it out, and that's one of the easiest ways to do it. So that's a great point you brought up. So talking a little bit about insolvency, you know, just because the debtor isn't paying on your judgment does that make the company or him and her insolvent in the eyes of the law? You're probably going to have to go deeper because the debtor is going to say, well, when I made these transfers, I was paying all my bills except uh, this one. Well, you need to look at values of, of property. You need to look at, you know, the payment histories. And if the debtor starts to raise that defense, that's something that you'll have to dig a little deeper in on your fraudulent conveyance action when you're in court. The big thing is, how big is the fraudulent conveyance action? How hard is the debtor going to defend it? And the real answer to that is, if it's truly a fraudulent transfer, the debtor's going to defend it pretty quick, you know, uh, aggressively because they know that that asset or those assets are coming back. And one of the things that I do want to point out is when you're successful on a fraudulent conveyance action, it may not mean that that money is going right into your bank account and you have the ability to collect it. Because before we were talking about UCCs and After our next break, we're going to be talking about mortgage foreclosures, commercial foreclosures, and ways to collect like that. Your lien may not be in the first position. So there may be other creditors out there who are entitled to recover on the property that you brought back in. And that's especially true for real estate. So let's just say there's a first mortgage on the property. You took your judgment. You filed a judgment lien. The debtor then transferred the property. Well, prior to filing your judgment lien, the debtor transferred the property. Your lien's not on there. When that property comes back, one of the things we're going to ask the court for is to say, we attempted to file our judgment lien the day after we got our judgment. Our lien should attach at that point in time, so now we would be in second position 
because anybody else who may have threw a lien on the wife's property on the transfer, those liens should be avoided and not jump ahead of us. So besides bringing the property back in, we want to make sure that we're protecting our rights to perfect our interest in any of that property. So then we can collect it and convert it to cash and then put it into our bank accounts instead of a third party's bank account. Okay, Al, thank you very much. It's time to go to our next break now. So we'll be back in a couple of minutes. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Did you know that 80% of civil judgments awarded to creditors are never collected? Be one of the 20% that successfully collects. Joe Dickerson is the nation's leading financial forensic expert. Contact Joe at 303-974-5610 or by email to joe at financialforensicservices.com for a free consultation about your judgment enforcement needs. That's 303-974-5610 or joe at financialforensicservices.com for your free judgment enforcement initial consultation with Joe Dickerson. Contact him today. Learn why 80% of civil money judgments are never enforced in the United States. Ensure that you have the best chance to actually recover your judgment and get the money the court awarded to you. Order a copy of Joe Dickerson's new book, Diagnostic and Prescriptive Judgment Enforcement. You can get your copy for just $24.95 with no shipping and handling costs. Call 303-974-5610 or order via email from joe at financialforensicservices.com. That's 303-974-5610 or joe at financialforensicservices.com. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are tuned in to the Judgment Enforcement Hour. To reach host Joe Dickerson or his guest this week, call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now, back to the show. Okay, Al, you were in the middle of uh, an explanation there on one of the examples, so let's go back and let you finish that, and we'll move forward. And so what I was talking about before the break is when you recover that fraudulent conveyance, it doesn't mean that that money is going right into your bank account at that point in time. You are still going to have to take the necessary steps that you do to execute on that. So one of the things that you want to make sure of is when you're proceeding and prevailing on your fraudulent conveyance action, You want to ask the court for the special relief. So if there were any liens that may have been put on the property after it was transferred to the wife, you want to make sure those liens are avoided. And you would name those creditors in the fraudulent conveyance action. So when the property came back, your lien, which you filed but didn't attach to anything, would end up attaching to that property, and you could be in second position, and then you go ahead and you can foreclose on the property. You may have filed a bank attachment, and when 
the bank reported back and answered into the court, the bank said, oh, no, we have no accounts in the debtor's name. And then you found out the account was transferred, you know, three days before, and at the time it transferred, it had $125,000 in it. What you want to ask the court is say, look, that money comes back to $125,000, and the judgment creditor would have been paid over those funds by the bank at that point in time, we're entitled to an immediately pay over. So you need to create your remedy and make sure that you ask the court to do everything to put you in the position where you would have been at the time if the debtor hadn't transferred the property over. Excellent point. Okay. So let's move on now to the uh, real estate foreclosures and uh, talk about how the the cash from the real estate foreclosures is where sometimes the really big money is. Yeah, and right before we go that, because I like to call this section the mortgage section, because I think mortgages, and as you point out in your book, um, and there's a great section on it, Mortgages provide you with so much information besides the value you get out of it when you foreclose, but just the other things that you can learn by the mortgage. And we know when individuals buy a house or businesses purchase property, that's probably one of the largest investments that they are going to make. And it's probably the most valuable uh, investment that they're going to make. And one of the things about mortgages no different than when we talked about the UCC financing statements. They all get filed with a recorder's office or somewhere in the county um, of where the property is located. And one of the things that you learn about that mortgage is who the mortgage holder is and who lent the money. And one of the pieces of information at that point in time is that you can go subpoena, and we talked about that last week, you can subpoena the financial institution to obtain information in regard to that mortgage. And mortgage payments are typically made up of principal, interest, taxes, and insurance. And when you subpoena the bank, you are going to ask, besides finding out what the balance is, you're going to find out what makes up the monthly mortgage payment. And knowing the insurance is included in that payment, you can also find out who the insurance company is. And then guess what? You turn around and you subpoena the insurance company. And you get a copy of the insurance policy and all the addendums and everything that's out there. And what do you find? you find that the debtor has a list of all these assets which you didn't know about. You know, the $20,000 diamond ring, the antique furniture, uh, the cars that are not titled uh, because they're off-road vehicles, ATVs, things of that nature. There's a wealth of information that you can learn from an insurance policy and give you different assets to be able to, to execute on. And that's without looking at what the value of the house is and or the business property and can you go foreclose and 
recover a substantial amount of money. That's the information that you're not going to find anywhere else. It's that deep dive that you do in finding that information. And uh, that's why it's so important, and that's why, you know, we're the legal end of it. We have clients, and they go out, and and they hire uh, companies like Joe's to do that deep dive. There's $10 million, and, you know, you made your client very happy in in that case. And, you know, it's no different when you get to the mortgage foreclosure realm, especially on commercial property. And one of the, and I'm going to tell the story first, and then I'm going to pull back. And this is a, a matter that we are handling. Um, I'm handling it with, with Joe. But we have a client out there who has a $1.2, $1.3 million judgment that it has been working on collecting. And... This was actually a good success story with the debtor's exam because we filed the debtor's exam. We obtained some documentation. Uh, we ran a title report. We looked at um, the liens that were on the property and found out that our client's judgment lien was in second position. Uh, there was a first mortgage of about a million dollars. Um, client also obtained a value on the property. And there are several ways that you can obtain values on the property, at least to get get an idea. The simplest way is you can look at the treasurer's tax value. And then there's a formula depending on what county or what state you're in. And that will give you just a very soft view of what the property might be worth. Another way to determine the value of the property is going to get a broker's price opinion. And in this case, our client obtained a broker's price opinion, and the broker's price opinion came back at $4.8 million. So we have a first mortgage of $1 million. We have our client's judgment lien of $1.2 million. On its face, there seems to be substantial equity in the property to satisfy our client's judgment lien, and get them paid in full. So after we filed the debtor's exam, uh, the debtor got an attorney involved and provided us with some documents. We questioned the debtor, and we're trying to negotiate a deal. And the debtor's attorney said to me, well, have your client make an offer. And I said, my client's not going to make any offer because below getting paid in full because I have a $4.8 million BPO, and even if you knock that down because debtors' attorneys think BPO and realtors don't have a clue or any idea on value, I said, even if you knock a million dollars off of it, my client's getting paid in full. And if I go and file a commercial foreclosure, our client's going to get paid in full. Well, all of a sudden, I get another call after the foreclosure is filed from debtor's counsel, and he goes, why'd you, why'd you file the foreclosure? Um, I thought we were going to try to resolve this. I said, you never came to me with a number because our number is 100%, 100 cents on the dollar. 
So now this action's going, and the debtor's all concerned, and they want to try to put the property up for sale. They want to talk more. Well, here's the biggest piece, and this is another valuable tool besides the equity piece in filing a foreclosure action. The individual debtor, the guarantor, was no longer liable on our, in our case. There was a deal to, to, to buy him out early on. He paid some money, and, and they released his liability. But he has a first mortgage out there, which he is personally liable on, a first mortgage that was not in default. So when we filed our foreclosure, pursuant <laughs> to the covenants in that first mortgage, it put that first mortgage into default, and now he became liable on his guarantee. So now there's real pressure on the debtor to come to the table and say, I'm going to go refinance this property, or I'm going to do um, something or make you a reasonable offer to get you paid. One of the things that you do need to realize on foreclosures They're very good because you eventually are going to get paid a substantial amount of money on your judgment, is that it takes time, okay? Uh, Especially in judicial states. Now, there are differences between judicial and non-judicial states. Non-judicial states have a process where foreclosures go very quickly. Judicial states and take the state of Ohio and Cuyahoga County up here in Cleveland where uh, I'm located uh, used to be outrageously slow in foreclosures. And then they got rid of their commercial docket, which they have brought back now, and that even slowed it down more. And on a consumer foreclosure, there's a chance that you might not see a sale of the property for 15 to 18 months. That has gotten much better, but never shy away from the foreclosure action because that is or could be the ultimate pressure tool, and especially you know that the money that you're investing in a commercial foreclosure, if the property values are correct, you're going to be successful in it. Uh, It's just going to take a little time to get there. Absolutely, Al. Uh, I think that's an excellent uh, a point that you're making there. Uh, is there anything else that you need to uh, cover on this subject? We've still got uh, about three minutes left here. Yes. To, I'd uh, like to add one more thing. So one of the things that you could always look at on real property, and, and it's important to know um, what the use of the property is. So if it's a property that's owned by your debtor, but they are leasing out, there's money coming in, okay, on rent payments, you know, every month, okay? If you had a mortgage that you subsequently converted to a judgment, you still might have the ability to collect those rents because you might have an assignment of rents. But the other piece is you can go after those rents either via a creditor's bill Or the other thing is you can get a receiver appointed. And a receiver, getting a receiver appointed has an individual who's appointed by the court come in and basically runs and controls that property. So all the rent payments would go to the receiver to be paid over to you. 
the receiver will handle all aspects and transactions pertaining to the property. So uh, moving to have a receiver appointed could be a very beneficial step. The one thing that you have to remember is if you're in second position, the receiver would need to make the monthly payment to the first mortgage holder before you would receive any money coming in from that receivership. But the receiver is another tool that could be used out there that's extraordinary relief, but a great pressure tactic because the debtor loses all control and has no income coming in because all that income is going now to pay the mortgages or the liens and the expenses of the property and not where the debtor can divert the funds by taking the rent payments that come in and not paying the liens or not paying the mortgage out there. So the receivership uh, is definitely a tool uh, to look at. Um, and again, these are all actions that need to be filed with the court. And again, they're time-consuming, but on a receivership, it's almost like a first-day motion in bankruptcy. You will go to the court, you'll file the motion for the receiver, you'll walk it through, and the court will immediately grant that receiver or set it for an emergency hearing and pull the debtor in within the next couple of days. So you're not talking the extended process of a receipt, you know, of a foreclosure, which is going on in the background. The receivership appointment will either occur or not occur on an expedited basis by the court. Great. Thank you so much, Al. Another wonderful show. Appreciate you being with us again today. And I want to remind our listeners that uh, next week we're going to have uh, another guest, Ben Harris, who will be talking about applying the extraordinary remedies in judgment enforcement. Ben's a partner with the litigation practice in Jones Walker Law Firm, and he's that firm's banking and creditors' rights team manager and is responsible for the enforcement of all the commercial judgment enforcement cases uh, placed with his firm. Uh, by Financial Forensic Services. So remember, between now and next week, folks, it's not what you win, it's what you recover that matters. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for tuning in to the Judgment Enforcement Hour. Be sure to join Joe Dickerson and another guest next Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time and 4 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll bring you more case studies and advice next week.